Welcome to the Brain Science Podcast, the show for everyone who has a brain. I am your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 126. This month, we are talking with Dr. Andy Clark about his new book, Surfing Uncertainty, Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind. The key idea of this book is that the main thing our brains do is prediction, and specifically, our brains try to predict incoming sensory signals. This is not a new idea, but in Surfing Uncertainty, Clark integrates this approach with the embodied approach that we have emphasized in several recent episodes. If you're new to the show, these ideas might sound somewhat intimidating, but during our conversation, it will become clear how these ideas help us understand things about our day-to-day experience. Before we get into the interview, I'm going to play you a short snippet to give you a feel for this idea. Okay, just as an example of the way in which app prediction can really impact perception, what I thought I'd do is just play you a a file of what's called sine wave speech, a sound file, see what you make of it, and after that, I'll alter the generative model that you bring to bear on the situation, and then you can listen to the file again. So here we go. So probably that didn't sound like very much to you. That's a sine wave speech file. It's a degraded replica of recorded speech that's been stripped of most of the normal speech attributes and acoustics. It preserves only a little sort of skeletal outline in which the kind of core pattern of dynamic changes is preserved. But if I now play to you the original file... The steady drip is worse than a drenching rain. And now I'll play you the sine wave speech again. I imagine that that sounded very, very different to you. I hope this example demonstrates that when we say that our brain is constantly generating predictions, this is just a fancy way of saying that our expectations color our experience. For the show notes and episode transcripts, please visit brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. I will be back after the interview to review the key ideas and to make a few announcements. Andy, I want to welcome you to the Brain Science Podcast. I've been a fan of your work for several years, so I'm really glad you had time to talk with me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Will you start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Andy Clark. I work at the University of Edinburgh. My main interest, I guess, has been one way or another in embodied cognition. So in my career, I started out being interested in working artificial neural networks. I then became interested in the limitations of that work. And in particular, it began to seem to me that those sorts of systems had to lean quite heavily on action in the world and on the structure of the environment if they were going to achieve their goals. That led me into a a period of looking at working robotics and embodied cognition and even extended cognition. And what's happened recently, and the topic of the new book, Surfing Uncertainty, is that I think we now have a kind of slightly new breed of computational approaches, which are really, really well positioned to be the account of what brains do that fits best with these sorts of stories about the importance of embodiment, action, and the world. And that's the kind of trajectory that gets me to where I am. And so your new book is called Surfing Uncertainty, Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind. It seems just at first glance a slight departure for some of your previous work. Can you just give us a brief overview? Yeah, it can seem like a departure. I think it will seem less of a departure to people that were familiar with my really early work on artificial neural networks. But people that are familiar with me as one of the architects of the notion that minds are extended into the world and that uh, embodiment is what we should really be thinking about when we try to understand the mind, they might kind of think to themselves, well, this, this seems to be mostly about brains, so what's going on here? But in fact, I think this is just a part of the mosaic that work in embodied cognition has been most seriously missing over the past 10, 15 years. Basically, what I think this provides is an account of what brains do which is a kind of perfect partner for embodied, action-oriented accounts of what it is that minds are all about, if you like. 
So it's basically supposed to be a, a story about brains, which is an ideal partner for the sorts of stories about minds that I've been working on for about the last 20 years. What's the overriding idea of this book then? Yeah, so basically the overriding idea is that brains are prediction machines, that brains are multi-level, multi-area machines whose primary, primary task, if you like, or at least one of their main tasks, is to try to predict the incoming streams of sensory information as they arrive. So in a, an interesting sort of way, the task of the brain here is kind of predicting the present. It's not really looking far into the future. It's trying to predict the shape of the current sensory signal. And it turns out that just by attempting to do that, you can learn a great deal about the world. And also, once you've learned about the world in that way, you can use the ongoing engagement in the prediction task as a way of rolling action and perception and attention into a kind of single package. I think it's this kind of rolling together into a single package that has been the most interesting uh, aspect of the new work for me. Perhaps I should say, of course, that you know, this work is work that I'm reporting on. The primary architects of this work are people like Carl Friston, Lee and Mumford, Rowan Ballard. There's a, a sort of pantheon of names there. What I think I'm mostly doing in the book is taking this emerging story and putting it into much closer contact with work in embodied cognition. I know Michael Anderson because I interviewed him recently, and so I'm a little bit aware of his objections as an example of the reaction of some of the embodied cognition people. And I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here, but could you put maybe your work into context with his work with the neural reuse? You see them as being complementary, don't you? Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, this is one of these things, obviously, we've got to sit down and have a chat about this, Mike and I, because really and truly, I think that the story that I'm telling should be really, really convivial to the approach that he's developed. In particular, throughout the book, there are attempts to use the notion that he develops of transient neural ensembles as actually a, a way of understanding the way in which different sets of neural resources get recruited moment by moment using just the kind of apparatus I'm describing. So it seems to me that the objections here are more kind of cosmetic than deep. Often, the way that these stories are described can make them sound much more like old-fashioned information processing stories. But I think that's actually just a mistake, that in fact these are dynamical, self-organizing stories that have all of the properties that, that people like Mike Anderson and others have been looking for. Is the problem related to the fact that some of the people who have done work with this predictive approach really kind of have looked at the brain as being sort of an isolated organ of prediction rather than the embodied approach that you take? I'm not a philosopher, so this term, epistemic internalism, doesn't mean anything to me, but I read that in Michael's response to your 2013 paper. Is it extrapolating that point of view to your work rather than really what your work is saying that might be? What's going on? Yes, I think that's a very fair diagnosis. Uh, also, I think if someone read the 2013 paper of mine and then read the book, they would get a rather different flavor from the book. I think one of the things I've learned since 2013 is basically how to describe these stories in ways that makes their affinities with working embodied cognition much, much more evident than it used to be. So I think that's maybe one of the main things that I'm increasingly able to do. Okay, well, we'll try to do that some today in our conversation, obviously. I, I think I sort of got this sort of backwards, and I apologize, but I was looking at that paper because he had just sent it to me, so it was kind of a, on the top of my brain. I apologize. So before we can get into some of the details of this whole prediction approach, I was hoping that we might, for the sake of my listeners who are totally new to this work, start out by explaining some of the terminology that you use in the paper. I'm not sure whether I should pick which terms to define, or you might pick a few that you know are important, and we can start with those. Well, I guess I could pick a couple that, uh, that I know are important. The two kind of slightly technical-sounding terms that play a big role here, one is the notion of a generative model, and the other is the notion of predictive coding. Generative models first. A generative model, it's a, a model of a domain which is, in a certain way, productive. That's to say it's a model that will allow the system to generate candidate instances of entities and states in that domain for itself. 
So in the case of perception, what this means is that instead of, for example, just being in a position to classify perceptual inputs as maybe belonging to one class or another, you're actually able to generate cases of perceptual inputs, potential cases for yourself from the top down. So it's that feature that actually puts these stories, I think, in close contact with work on imagination, for example, work on understanding, which I'll come to later. So that's part of the story, the notion of a generative model, which is to say, just one more time, I guess, it's a body of knowledge that enables you to systematically construct for yourself the kinds of events and states of affairs that the domain tends to present to you. This would be the part that generates the top-down signals? That's right, yeah. It's a structured body of knowledge, you know, familiar from many, many different kinds of approach that is capable of constructing instances in the domain. A grammar, if you like, as a, a kind of generative model for language itself. Right. The other slightly technical term that I wanted to put on the table here is predictive coding. So you've got the model in place here, which is attempting to do this top-down prediction task all the time. What that means is that it's trying to predict the barrage of sensory information as it hits the system. There's a question then, well, what happens when the top-down predictions meet the incoming sensory information or the sensory barrage? And predictive coding is one particular story, which may or may not turn out to be right, about what happens when those two things meet. According to the predictive coding story, what happens when they meet is there's a kind of comparison and it's only residual errors deviations from what was predicted that are then sent further through the system and get to drive further processing. It's the same predictive coding that many listeners will be familiar with from commercial work, for example, um, work in motion compressed video, where what you send to generate the next frame of the video is just the difference from that frame and the previous one. So if you imagine something moving against a still background, well, the only difference is the thing that's moving. So you don't need to send a still background one more time. You just send that the one time, and then you send forward the second time around just the deviations from the way that frame would be if everything was the same second time around. That's a great example because it illustrates the concept of the fact that it decreases the bandwidth you require to process the information. That's right. That's actually, I think, one of the major, one of the major attractions of these stories is that they're very, very much committed to neural frugality, to getting the most out of the least use of neural bandwidth. And that's another place where I think there's a, a lot of contact with themes and work in embodied cognition. Another phrase that came up in the book that connects to these two you've just defined is this whole idea of the Bayesian brain or hierarchical Bayesian models. That sounds really intimidating, but it's really an important concept. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I think it would be possible to read the book and to tell this whole story without worrying about the Bayesian elements. Basically, they're just a way of saying that, if you like, get into grips with what the value of bringing the top-down information to bear on the incoming sensory signal is. And in Bayesian terms, the top-down information is based on your priors, your prior knowledge and expectations about how the world will be. And of course, the job of a good, efficient system is then to put the incoming stuff, the evidence, together with the priors in the best way possible. It turns out that the best way possible is the Bayesian way. That's just a particular way of merging top-down and bottom-up information. That would be the optimal thing to do, and it looks as if in an awful lot of cases, brains are merging those two streams of information in an optimal way. It looks that way for an awful lot of basic perception, and it's, of course, increasingly debated to what extent that kind of optimal merging also occurs for higher level stuff. Okay. Maybe just to say one more word about that. It's really just a way of merging the incoming evidence with the knowledge that you already possess in order to come up with the best idea of how things are after that. And of course, your best idea of how things are after that then provides the priors for the next time around. So you're, if you like, continuously updating the model and the knowledge base that you bring to bear on the world on the basis of these sort of previous interactions. Can you give us an example of something from the experimental data that supports this view? Yeah, well, there's an awful lot of possible examples here. I suppose the most, some of the most persuasive ones will be cases of multimodal integration. 
For example, we're taking in information from a visual modality and we're taking it in from an auditory modality. And sometimes one of those modalities is more reliable in a certain circumstance than others. And so you have things like the McGurk effect, where the way that you hear a particular sound, a kind of R sound, varies according to the way that your lips are being perceived to move. So we get these sorts of careful integrations of information coming from different modalities, and they've been shown in many, many cases to, again, to obey these sorts of principles. Another case is motion illusions. Many motion illusions have been shown in some very, very persuasive work to actually turn out to be cases of this sort of optimal merging of prior expectations and incoming information. So that's kind of slightly surprising that, as it were, no system could possibly do better than be subject to these kinds of motion illusions if it's going to get motion right most of the time in the kind of the world that we actually live in. Mm-hmm. What about the idea of error signals? Yeah. So basically, the error signal is one of the main sort of players in this kind of story, because once you've got the top-down prediction machinery doing its stuff, the incoming signal is just used as a way of being compared to those top-down predictions, and it's the differences, the so-called prediction errors, that then get to drive either the selection of a better top-down hypothesis or else drive the system into plasticity so that it can learn a better model of the world. So prediction error sort of plays a role that in other kinds of models is often played by the sensory information itself. So, you know, so that a kind of a classical picture of what goes on when sensory information hits the sensory surfaces is that that information kind of moves through the system, recruiting more and more complex states as it goes forward. In these stories, Information is still moving through the system, but that information consists of error signals. It consists of deviations from what was expected. So one example, well, I think you probably have several examples like this, but when we're expecting, for example, to hear something and it's not there, it's almost like we can hear it not being there, right? That seems to me to be a really powerful example of the principle of this, because I don't see how you would explain that experience with the traditional explanation. Yeah, I think that's right. There's a whole range of common experiences I think are rather nicely illuminated by this kind of story. For example, if I touch the lever on my chair that would normally make my office chair go down, but it's already in the down position... I seem to start to experience a kind of going down this, and then it turns out I'm not going down at all. But in many, many cases, it's as if we experience the onset of something which was highly predicted, even when that thing is not actually present. And of course, this is actually has a kind of downside as well. I think some people may have seen uh, the entry by Lisa Feldman Barrett in uh, New York Times recently talking about cases where someone might misperceive someone as going for a gun when in fact they just carrying a mobile phone or something, if they're in a situation where, for better or for worse, for good reasons or for bad, they're just strongly predicting that the person might be someone that's about to draw a gun on them. Yeah, that's one of the things I think that makes it so hard for guys coming back from the Middle East to adapt to being back in the civilian world. attention fit into your framework? So one of the attractive things about the story, I think, is that attention turns out to be a kind of pervasive part of the basic mechanism here. So the basic mechanism is the kind of flow of top-down prediction being met by the incoming sensory signal. What attention does on these stories is it sets the balance between bits of the incoming sensory signal and bits of the top-down prediction stuff. So, for example, just to take a really kind of basic example, on a foggy day, maybe I don't want to give too much, assign too much reliability to incoming information from vision. Maybe I should be assigning more reliability to information coming from hearing in conditions like that by varying the weighting on the error signals that are being computed relative to those different signals. You, in effect, vary the balance of influence that they have on the response of the system. So attention is just a device in these systems for varying the balance between top-down prediction and bottom-up sensory information according to task and context. 
So it turns out to be, if you like, a pervasive part of the mechanism. And this would cover, in a way, not just deliberate attention, but all kinds of automatic distributions of attention when we're, for example, experienced at uh, performing a certain task. Right. I was The next thing I was going to ask you was about consciousness. I mean, we don't have to be conscious of these prediction signals. Absolutely not. Yes, that's right. And I think it's really important to stress that most of the predictive action in these stories is indeed going on non-consciously. It's a rather big and interesting question what the relation between conscious predictions and expectations and this whole large non-conscious machinery actually is. So, for example, I can be surprised by something. If I open my eyes and turn around and there's a big elephant on the stage, then I can be surprised that somehow there's an elephant up there. In a sense, then, that means that the elephant wasn't predicted. But for me to experience the elephant at all means that after an initial flurry of error signals, an elephant on stage was what the bulk of my neural systems thought was the least surprising thing possible. So there's a certain sort of superficial, I think, mismatch here between what's surprising to the conscious agent and what's least surprising to the brain. Good. So then what happens when we're imagining something rather than actually perceiving it? Yeah. One of the attractive things about the story is that imagination and perception are constructed in very much the same sort of way here. So when I'm perceiving the the coffee cup on the desk in front of me, I have to recruit a bunch of predictive signals, if you like, from the generative model, which are able to construct the particular way that that coffee cup is. If I imagine the coffee cup when it's uh, not in my presence, then I'm activating the same kind of resources, but their activity is not being modified or modulated by the incoming sensory signal. So creatures that can perceive the world in using the kind of apparatus described in the book are also creatures that are positioned to imagine their world. I don't think that means they can deliberately imagine their world. I suspect that's a kind of additional capacity that perhaps only a few animals have. But certainly if you can perceive the world using this sort of equipment, you'd be the sort of thing that could imagine stuff, could dream things, etc. Yeah, I certainly think my dogs are anticipating various things that we do during the day. I think that's exactly right. So one of the good things here is that this is a story that will apply to a wide swathe of creatures. Certainly all mammalian brains, I think, are going to be illuminated by this kind of approach. There are questions about about other kinds of creature. I don't know whether we should think of these stories as having much to say about what worms do, for example. Some people think that there's a version of these stories that applies even down there. And other people uh, might think that without a kind of multi-layered cortex, it's just not the machinery to implement any sort of rich or interesting version of this story. When talking about this as an account of perception, I think what's important about it is that it's a kind of perception that reveals a structured world of external objects. So you might think that, you know, there are, in fact I do think, that there are ways of using perception to keep you in touch with the world, but nonetheless don't, as a result, reveal a structured world of external objects. And maybe the worm's an example of that. You know, maybe some creatures use perceptual information to get around their worlds without being presented with the world while they do so. What these stories illuminate best, I think, is the way in which a certain way of perceiving the world actually reveals the world to you. And that's because what you're doing here is, in effect, trying to reconstruct a way that the world is by using the generative model so as to make the best sense of or to best accommodate the incoming sensory signal. And the more complex that model is, the more multi-layered it is, the more complex your experience, the more multi-layered your experience is going to be. So I see it primarily as a story about structured perception. That brings up a question for me about the whole issue of representation, because you're not saying that we're making some complicated model of the world in the traditional cognitive science sense of it, are you? No, and in fact, I think that's where the embodied cognition side makes its greatest appearance in the book and in my thinking about this sort of topic. So it's important, I think, that the goodness of a predictive model in these stories isn't determined just, if you like, by how well it can replicate or anticipate the incoming sensory stream. It's determined also by how frugally it can do so. 
So the goodness of one of these stories is determined here by something that you could describe as accuracy minus complexity. So the least complex predictive cascade that will allow you to do the things you want to do is actually the one that is going to be the winner here, the one that's going to be um, chosen. That means actually that we shouldn't really think about these stories in quite the same way as perhaps people thought about them back in the 60s and 70s when there was a lot of work on perception as the kind of a recruitment of the right top-down hypothesis able to match the incoming sensory information. The trouble with that stuff is it was all really focused on passive perception. Once you bring action into the picture and you take seriously the notion that the job of the mind isn't really to give us a kind of mirror-like, rich picture of an external world. Rather, it's just to allow us to respond appropriately to what's going on in the external world. And that's where I think getting the, the role of the error signal exactly right as a way uh, not just of recruiting a picture of the world, but simultaneously as a way of driving the right kind of action in the world really matters. Right. And that leads right into my next question, which was to talk about motor control and how this model sees it differently from the traditional approach. Yeah, well, I suppose, of course, it does depend what you take to be the traditional approach. There is actually a long history in work in motor control that does have this sort of flavor. In this kind of approach, motor control is about a certain sort of perceptual prediction. So what happens is, in order to bring a certain movement about, you in effect predict the stream of sensory information that would result were the movement happening. Then you'll get this standard flurry of prediction errors. And to get rid of those prediction errors, you move the body in the right sort of way. So the kind of idea here is that, uh, that motion control, motor control, involves a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You expect certain kinds of signals from the world, but you're not currently getting them. But in order to resolve the errors that then accumulate, the body makes the right motions. And that's because what you're predicting is, is a kind of trajectory of sensation all the way down to sort of very, very low-level reflexes, muscle reflexes. It turns out that this is actually a rather frugal story about motor control. It's one that uh, you'll have seen versions of in work on emulator stories that have been around for quite a long time. So the idea there was that in order to perform fluent motor control, one of the things that we would do was use a forward model of the kind of dynamics of the system so as to be able to anticipate sensory feedback before it arrived. There's a certain sense that in these models, it's kind of all like that. So the forward model here isn't a sort of little add-on extra that you just use sometimes. Instead, it's the way that the whole system is working all the time. Motor control seems to fall rather nicely out of that kind of story. So it's a kind of approach that makes an appearance in some of the, the nicest work that I've seen lately in, in simple robotics, for example. Would you consider the work in robotics as sort of evidence that this is a feasible model because you can implement it in robotics? Do we have any evidence from the brain that this is the way it works? Yeah, and that's a very good question. There are existence proofs from simple robotics that it can work. And then you look at the brain, and as I understand it, what you find is that a lot of the properties of the motor cortex, if you like, fall into place more neatly when you see motor cortex as operating really in just the same way as the other sensory cortexes. So it's not really that the motor stuff is kind of working in a different direction. It's working in just the same sort of way by attempting to resolve a certain kind of prediction error. But it's a subset of prediction errors. It's the ones that are relating to proprioceptive predictions, predictions of the particular signals that would come from moving your body around in certain ways. So what happens if you think about moving but you don't actually move? Yeah, this is one of the places where the piece of the equipment which is implementing attention gets to play a big role. So I don't think I mentioned the name of that, but it's called in this literature precision, the precision weighting of the prediction error signal. Basically, what that does is it makes the prediction error signal that's being computed have more or less upstream effects. So the idea would be that if you think about moving but you don't move, then you're running all of the normal predictions, but you're not assigning very high weight 
or indeed perhaps anyway, to prediction error signals associated with those predictions. So nothing is causing the system to try to remedy the situation, if you like. So there's a kind of picture here of offline cognition, which I think is a bridge between this sort of story and higher cognition. So offline cognition here works by running the generative model that you have of embodied exchanges with the world, but doing so with low precision, low reliability, assigned to the kinds of prediction error signal that would result in you moving around in the world otherwise. So the upshot is that you sort of imagine what the consequences of your moving around would be without actually doing any of it. And I think this is a possible way into stuff that looks more like reflective cognition, problem solving, by imagining whether you get closer to your goal by doing such and such. The Brain Science Podcast is sponsored by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audio in many genres. Many of the books featured on the Brain Science Podcast are available from Audible. This month, I'd like to suggest the book Anxious, Using the Brain to Understand and Treat Fear and Anxiety by Dr. Joseph Ledoux. Dr. Ledoux is well known for his research about the amygdala, and I'm working on trying to get him to come on the show. If you aren't already an Audible member, you can get a trial subscription by going to audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science. So we've been talking a little bit about how motor control fits into this idea of the predictive processing model. What's your take on mirror neurons? Yeah, I suppose I think that an account of how mirror neurons or mirror systems come into being falls rather naturally out of these stories. But in a certain way, it's a slightly deflationary account in that it doesn't require there to be neurons that intrinsically have any very special kinds of properties here. So it's more like a sort of mirror system story. Generally, the idea will be that if a certain kind of information is useful when you're observing a scene and is also useful when you're bringing an action about, then those bits of the model will get connected together. So, for example, when I'm drinking from a coffee cup and when I'm observing you drinking from a coffee cup, then there can be a large overlap in the relevant parts of the model that are being activated. And the difference will just be that in the case where I'm going to do it, then I assign high precision to a certain bunch of proprioceptive prediction errors, and so I actually end up moving my arms around in the right way. It kind of turns out that when you run the kind of story in this mode, it gives you a way of disentangling the sort of different determinants of an action that you're observing. So one of the puzzles for at least some accounts of the mirror neuron system is, for example, how we can observe what appears to be exactly the same state of the world. The classic example is someone wielding a knife in an operating theatre and the question is, is it Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde? Something like that. It could be exactly the same sort of physical scene, but you do need to understand those scenes very differently. By running the story in reverse and kind of asking under what conditions would I, if I were doing that, be predicting this particular stream of sensory inputs, you get a way of disentangling the kind of Hyde version from the Jekyll version. I don't think I've made that very plain there, but it's one of the spin-offs here. I've covered mirror neurons several times in the past, and last year I interviewed Greg Hickok. He was kind of challenging the inflated view of mirror neurons. You know, the thing is, those neurons, when they were making the original measurements from those neurons that were in the motor cortex but appeared to have sensory qualities, they made a big deal out of the ones that happened to fire when they observed the same thing. And if you look at the numbers, there was lots of them that fired for other sensory things that they just ignored because it didn't fit into their interpretation. But instead, I think that it sort of fits into the fact that you emphasize in the book, it's not like motor and sensory are really separate. I mean, they're both using the same cognitive resources. Yes, I think that's the underlying story here is that a single generative model, if you like, is being used to engage these different kinds of resource. 
And then we shouldn't be surprised if we see a neuron firing to a sensory input, even if it's in what we have traditionally called the motor cortex. I think that's right. I think that distinction between sensory and motor cortex is is one that has more to do with the kind of way that we kind of naively divide up our own behaviors in the world. You know, sometimes we're perceiving the world and sometimes we're acting in the world. But if this story about the underlying machinery is right, then it's really one big rolling perception action machine that is constantly engaged in the world. And that being the case, we shouldn't be at all surprised to find states of what appear to be one of these machines are highly correlated with states of what appear to be one of the other machines, because really it's just one machine all along. One of the things that I enjoyed about reading your book was that as you're describing the various examples, it fits so much of our intuitive experience. Like when you're learning how to do something, you really learn how it feels to do it. You'll go like, oh, that felt right. The fact that we're trying to reproduce a predicted proprioceptive signal, to me, that just intuitively feels like it makes sense. Yeah, I feel that way about it too. You know, I don't know for sure whether that's just because I've been steeped in this story, you know, for four or five years now, but it really does seem to me as I move around the world that what I'm constantly in the business of doing is trying to predict my own streams of sensory input and also to predict the streams of internally generated sensation as well. So another big bit of the emerging story here is moving to think not just about predicting the stuff that is coming at you from the external world, but also predicting the stuff that's coming at you from inside your own body, so-called interceptive prediction. And it's quite possible, I think, that when we begin to get a better picture of how interceptive prediction and extraceptive, the stuff coming in at you from the world of prediction, work together, that might be a stepping stone towards a better understanding of why it feels the way it does to be a human being, knowing a world and moving around in a world. That's to say, it might be a step on the road to a better understanding of consciousness. That's a big promissory note, but I do think that there is something here, that when you have a very structured grip on the world around you, and you also have a structured grip on the way that your own bodily states are going to evolve as you move around in that world, this is a much thicker picture of what it would be to be a knowing, moving, embodied creature than I think you get from looking at either of those on its own. So what's useful about the paradigm here is that the machinery is very well suited to throw in the inward-looking, interceptive information just into the same big mix as the information coming in from the external world. So just as you get good stories here about multi-sensory integration, so you would get good stories about the integration of all the stuff coming from the outside and all the stuff going on inside. And I'm tempted by the idea that there's a neat story about conscious experience to be told one day in that sort of way. I don't know whether this would be something that could possibly classify as an objection, but what about learning? How would learning be explained in this? Because if we're supposed to have a prior, how do we ever get started? Yeah, that's a really good question. Fortunately, it's one that's got a really good answer. So learning in this story works in just the same way. And I think that is a really, a really key feature of these stories. Maybe uh, an example is a good way to think about this one. Think about grammar for example. It's really useful if I want to predict the next word in the sentence that you're speaking, if I know stuff about grammar. But a really good way for a machine learning system to learn a lot of stuff about grammar is for it to try and try and try again to predict the next words that are coming at it in a big corpus of sentences. So by engaging in the prediction task, you can slowly generate the knowledge that you use to perform the prediction task. And that, I think, has been one of the big revelations in this emerging story is that learning and online response could actually be dealt with in the same sort of way and using the same kinds of resources. At the same time, maybe I should just enter a little caveat there, there's quite a big debate here about whether or not online perception is using the prediction task in the same way as learning is, for example. So some people think that Learning is really very driven by the attempt to predict stuff, but that one of the things that learning might do is install much faster and more frugal ways of responding to the incoming stuff so that maybe you don't need to do so much prediction in order to use that signal in the right sort of way. And I think that will turn out to be fine. I think that will fit in as part of the kind of frugal version of the story here. 
but it's certainly worth stressing that prediction, I think almost certainly, plays a really big role in learning. And what's really up for grabs now is the role that it plays in moment-by-moment online response. One of the interesting examples you talked about in the book of a possible thing that this approach could explain would be the problem of choking. Yeah. Now, that is a little bit of the book that uh, I don't have a lot more to say about. It's a conjecture that is made, I think, by Carl Friston in one of those papers. And the kind of thought would be that choking in sports, you know, where, for example, the golfer gets the yips and can't quite get the uh, fluidity of stroke, is in some way a sort of disorder of attention. And what that would mean here is that it's a misassignment of precision. So as you deliberately start to think about stuff, then you may upset all of those automatic assignments of weight into different aspects of the prediction error signal that would otherwise be happening, and it would disturb your performance. So there's a kind of account of choking here, which is perhaps a little bit like the accounts that seem to be emerging here of stuff like functional motor syndrome, cases where people have physical problems or pains or apparent paralysis of a, a hand or a limb, but the doctors can find no good physical cause for that. One of the interesting things, as I'm sure you know about some of these cases, the kind of nature of the problem often seems to kind of follow folk contours. So you can get a paralyzed hand where there's sort of no physiological rhyme or reason to the unit that is actually paralyzed, but it is the unit that we kind of intuitively think of as a hand, just cut off neatly at the wrist or something. And of course, if what's going on here is something to do with a disturbance of machinery which very deeply involves our own beliefs about the world and the predictions about the world that we're making on the basis of that multi-layered belief system, then some of that stuff might fall into place. Yeah, you've got a lot of examples from a wide variety of pathologies in the book and also, of course, from artificial intelligence. So, you know, there's no way I can do justice to everything you've got. I'm always wanting to get around to talking about the outfielder problem from every person that I interview, and I always run out of time, which I think is what's happening again today. So someday I'm going to talk to somebody about the outfielder problem. It's a good one. I think it does have a nice solution here as well. Do you think we have time to talk about that one? Yeah, with the outfielder problem, it's kind of classic example from the embodied cognition literature of a a very fast and frugal method for running to catch a fly ball in baseball. A ball that is flying high in the air, heading for the edge of the field. And there are some rather simple solutions. You run so as to keep the image of the ball hanging stationary in the sky. That's to say you cancel the optical acceleration of the, the perceived optical acceleration of the ball. You're in the right place to catch the ball if you keep running, to maintain perception within those boundaries, if you like. And it's often seemed as if this might be an example where perception's playing a very, very different kind of role. You know, instead of firing up a complicated world model, you're just using perception to get enough information into the system to solve the problem in a very sort of frugal way. The way to think about that, I think, here is that this is a case in which you recruit the shallowest predictive model that will solve the problem. You predict that the ball will remain apparently hanging stationary in the sky as you run, and every time you get error signals with respect to that prediction, you do a little bit of sort of uh, motor action to cancel out that error, and as that cycle rolls along, you'll end up solving the problem. So I think what's interesting is that I don't think that's actually a different class of solutions altogether. It's often been presented as if Somehow these are the sort of frugal ecological solutions, and then there are the heavy-duty model-based solutions. But the nice thing about the story here is that you can sort of move or toggle very, very fluently between the more frugal solution and the more model-based solution, because basically you're selecting different subsets of prediction error to care about at different times, and sometimes those subsets reach all the way through the system so as to activate everything that you richly know about the baseball the baseball field or the particular field that you're running in. And at other times you can get away with a great deal less than that. So I think there's some, some interesting work emerging in uh, on the edges of robotics, people like Giovanni Pezzullo, who are looking at cases where that sort of intuitive distinction between highly model-involving and really, really model shallow response are actually just 
different points on a single spectrum of response, all of which are being orchestrated using this kind of apparatus. That's a slightly long-winded way of saying that I think the optical acceleration cancellation, outfielders problem stuff here is actually a nice instance in which we can begin perhaps to see why these sorts of stories actually aren't inimical to standard work in embodied cognition. I'm always struck by the fact that they have shown that outfielders can catch the ball, but if you ask them to predict where the ball would land, they can't do it. And I know that's right. I've taken tennis lessons where the coaches will say, tell me where the ball is going to bounce. And, you know, none of us can do it, which is one reason why lines calls are so notoriously bad. We can hit the ball, but we're not very good at predicting where it's going to bounce. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly right. If you were just going to stand in one place and try and predict where the ball's going to land, you would do very, very badly. But what the prediction machinery is doing here is engage in sort of micro-cycles in which perception and action are working together so as to resolve those little, little bits of prediction error relative to the perceived optical acceleration of the ball. And by systematically cancelling those out using perception and action, you solve the problem. So I think it's actually a very nice sort of microcosm of the way in which we want perception and action to work together and to work together as frugally as possible so as to solve the kinds of problems that actually matter to creatures like us in day-to-day life. And it's that sort of way of using this sort of apparatus that I think will turn out to be very important in the end, this way that is totally continuous with working in body cognition. And you're also creating testable hypotheses. That's important. Absolutely. There's very, very interesting work now looking at uh, a response in V1, for example, a very early visual processing area, showing that responses in V1 can be affected by stuff that is being computed much higher up the visual processing system. And that falls into place rather neatly if what this whole system is in the business of doing is trying to use the higher level stuff to predict how the signal is going to be at lower levels. So Lars Muckley at Glasgow doing that kind of work. In general, I think what happens here is that there's a very big story that is rather hard to put into contact with direct experimental test, just the idea that prediction matters. But then there's a lot of much more detailed stories about how this kind of story might be implemented in the brain or might be implemented in the case of uh, motor control, for example. And all of those detailed sort of implementation suggestions are highly testable. That's what we're hopefully going to see in the next decade or so. Then we'll find out whether they're uh, any good. Yeah, and it's going to be probably something predictive, but maybe this might be not the final model, but we got to start somewhere. I think that's right. I think the stuff we can hold on to here is that hierarchical modeling in some sense is really important to understanding what brains are doing. And that hierarchical modeling, which simultaneously engages perception and action, is going to be very important. Beyond that, I think the jury is kind of out. Whether, for example, predictive coding, that very particular story about the way in which the incoming signal gets combined with the top-down predictions. Whether that turns out to be right, I don't think we know yet. That's up for grabs. Maybe it's right sometimes and not right other times. You know, again, there's no reason to think, or it's not necessarily true at least, that the brain will use the same kind of strategy, even at that level, all the time. So I think there's an awful lot that we don't know. Hopefully, one of the things that is going on here is that we, the cognitive sciences, are beginning to find better ways to ask questions of the brain. And that's the most that, uh, that we could really hope for. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we close? Only one thing that I can think of, although I'm sure that there are really, really lots. But one thing that springs to mind is there's a very, very common worry about these sorts of stories, which is called the darkened room worry. I think it's worth just saying a word about why I think that that worry is not actually a genuine worry. So the worry is, if brains are in the business of trying to predict the sensory signal all the time, then why don't we just take the simplest way out and lock ourselves in a darkened room somewhere so that our brains can carry on predicting the lack of sensory stimulation until we sort of uh, eventually die. So the idea is you give the predictive brain all that it could possibly want, but you, the agent, end up dying very rapidly as a result. Is that a sort of reductio ad absurdum of the story? 
I think it's quite important to see why nothing like that is an implication of this kind of story. Because what we predict is determined very much, is going to be determined very much by our needs as an evolved, adaptive creature. And so brains like ours are not going to be the sorts of brains which really can predict staying in a darkened room until they die. Maybe at the very top level, if I was locked in a darkened room, I might start to expect that I'm going to stay there until I die. But if these stories are right, there'll nonetheless be whole swathes of activity which are perhaps best interpreted as you really expecting that you're going to get out, you're going to get fed, and continuously taking action in order to try to do so. Another way to look at this maybe is that one of the things that we will endemically predict, if you like, is change, that we don't predict that everything will just stay the same. The kind of world we live in is a world in which sensory stimulation is constantly changing. So change is what we expect. So, so I think that the simplest versions of the dark and dream worry, I don't think are ones that we have to worry about. There are some more complicated versions, which are sort of how do we explain the attractions of novelty and play and exploration? They take a little bit more explaining in these sorts of frameworks, but in fact, they also turn out to fall into place quite nicely. Yeah, because one thing we didn't talk about that you mentioned in the book was how the brain is restless. I mean, we know that the so-called default network of the brain is always active. It's not like our brain just sits here waiting for stuff to happen. That's right. One of the implications of the story, at least one of the interpretations that I think has quite a lot going for it, is that the resting state and spontaneous cortical activity in general is kind of a reflection of the overall generative model that you've got of embodied exchange with the world. Maybe what you're seeing when you see spontaneous cortical fluctuations, for example, is a way of sort of exploring around the edges of your current best model, that generative model of embodied exchange with the world. So maybe there's a little story to tell there somewhere about creativity, discovery, that by exploring at the edges of that model, you can actually discover things about how the world might be, get some of those sort of aha moments going. Yeah, and then sensory deprivation makes people crazy, so... Well, that's right. And again, you know, that is one of the things that we just least expect. There's so many, so many levels of our ongoing prediction machinery do not expect no change at all. No change, no information. That's a very strange state of affairs for human beings to inhabit. Andy, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I do want to ask you one last question that I ask all my guests, which is, do you have any advice for students? Advice for students? Well, I suppose it depends what you're a student of, at least for the one piece of advice I can think of. The piece of advice I can think of was given to me ages ago by Donald T. Campbell, who was a, a cyberneticist who was also on my committee. So what Donald Campbell said was that if you want to work in interdisciplinary science, what you really have to do is have a fish-scale model of the job of the cognitive sciences, at least, where you don't really try to know everything about everything. That would just be impossible. But instead, you try to fill in, try to operate on some of the intersections between areas. So what Campbell said is, if you find that you're going to the same conferences as everyone else down your corridor, then you're doing something wrong. You should be going to different conferences, talking to different people, and trying to build some of those bridges. I don't know if that's actually um, advice for everyone, but for people working in interdisciplinary cognitive science, it seems like quite a good piece of advice. Right. One of the questions I think that I asked One of my guests recently was about, because things have changed so much in the last couple of decades where, for example, I interviewed Patricia Churchland several years ago, and when she was starting out, going into philosophy was really the only direction to go if you were interested in the mind, because science wasn't really going there yet. Now, there's so many options for students. Should they go into a hard neuroscience direction, or should they go into a philosophical discipline? Do you get students coming to you trying to figure out which way to go? Yeah, very much so, yeah. So, for example, one of our programs, people often come onto that program and they come to do philosophy and they end up going to try to get into neuroscience, for example. That sort of seems to be quite a common outcome. Yeah, I think these are very interesting times in that sense. Cognitive science now has a kind of theoretical edge in all of its sort of sub-disciplines. So, in a way, I think this is... A particularly interesting time just because 
work in neuroscience, for example, is, is much, much closer, I think, to the center of cognitive science than it ever was when I was starting out. At that time, maybe it was artificial intelligence that was the kind of center. Neuroscience now has enough of a body of systemic theory to be a, a kind of core player there. At the same time, I guess, one of the things that I do think it's very useful to do is to keep as close an eye on stuff that we can really sort of build and demonstrate as working. So keep a close eye on robotics, I think. Whatever bit of cognitive science you're actually working in, I think keeping a close eye on robotics is a really good idea because that's where everything is trying to come together. What we know about machine learning, what we know about making machines that move, making the most of embodiment, action, and the structure of the environment. Robotics seems to be the nicest little microcosm to look at all of that. My very first exposure to embodied cognition really was when I interviewed Rolf Pfeiffer very early on in my show. I mean, he was like during the very first year. So that's really what made me aware of embodied cognition, which is one of my absolute favorite topics. You know, when we see a little robot that starts off nice and plastically using heavy-duty predictive resources, but then um, applying them in the most frugal way to do the things it needs to do, then I'll believe this story for sure. I really appreciate your time. I look forward to seeing where things go in the future. Yeah, great. And I look forward to uh, chatting again in the future sometime. We chatted some years ago, so, you know, maybe once every five or six years we get a chat. Well, it takes a long time to write these books you guys write. I think I have the easy half of the job, just reading them. Well, I don't think so. I think coming up with questions to keep it rolling for an hour has got to be uh, pretty hard work all the time. But you do a great job. Much appreciated all around, I think. Thank you. Okay, thanks so much. Cheers. The basic idea of Andy Clark's latest book, Surfing Uncertainty, Prediction, Action, and the Embodied Mind, is that the main thing our brains do is prediction. This is not a new idea, but I think he makes a valuable contribution to the conversation by giving an excellent overview of the work being done in this field, but also by showing us how prediction and embodied cognition can work together. So let's review. First of all, Clark emphasized that the overriding theme of this book is that brains are prediction machines that are constantly trying to predict incoming streams of sensory data. But these predictions also drive action, which he describes as rolling action, perception, and attention into a single package. He also emphasized the embodied cognition viewpoint that sees perception as active rather than passive. During our conversation, we touched briefly on the neural reuse ideas of Michael Anderson. Anderson was my guest on episode 124, which I encourage you to listen to again so that you can appreciate how their ideas complement one another. It's easy enough to propose that the brain is a prediction machine, but to figure out how that might work in the real world, we need a few technical terms. The two Clark felt were most important were generative model and predictive coding. A generative model is just a systematic way of producing or generating predictions. For example, grammar is a generative model that helps us to predict what words are most likely to appear next when we are listening to someone talk. So, the generative model is the method for producing the top-down signals or predictions that are then compared to the actual incoming sensations. Predictive coding is a method for describing what happens when the top-down predictions meet the incoming sensory signals. Clark emphasized that this is not the only possible mechanism for describing what happens but it is one that he feels has a good chance of being at least partly right. The key feature in predictive coding is that when the prediction and the actual signal meet, the result is what he called a residual error signal. And it is this error signal that actually gets propagated up to the next level. He emphasized that one reason that this is attractive is that it is computationally frugal, which means it requires less bandwidth. 
He compared it to the idea of video compression, where the signal that is transmitted contains only information about what has changed instead of the whole image. This contrasts sharply with conventional models of sensory processing, which see the signal as becoming increasingly complex as it progresses through the cortex. For example, the traditional view says that in the primary visual cortex, all there is is information about things like edges and directions, and then that the world that we experience is gradually constructed. Another technical term that we only touched on briefly was Bayesian logic, which is a powerful method that uses prior knowledge to make predictions. I should probably do a whole episode of Books and Ideas about this someday because Bayesian logic is an incredibly important and powerful idea. However, for the purpose of today's conversation, just remember that there is a lot of recent evidence that the brain may use a similar process as a part of its predictive machinery. I encourage you to read Surfing Uncertainty if you want to learn more. I asked Clark about attention because this is another important topic in cognitive neuroscience. In his predictive coding scheme, the role of attention is to determine which incoming signals are given priority. So, for example, if one is imagining doing something but not actually doing it, the brain is going to ignore the incoming sensory signals, which don't match. But if you're trying to actually do the activity, then these signals become very important and lead to the error signals that you use to adjust what you're doing so that you can perform the activity correctly. This idea touches on the beauty of Clark's proposal. Here we have a model that can potentially explain a wide variety of human experience, including everyday perception, imagination, action, and even why we sometimes experience things that aren't actually present. Another thing I like about this model is that I can see how it can apply to animals with different levels of cognitive ability. The machinery of predictive coding is generic and assumed to be present on multiple levels. Most of our brain's predictions are outside our conscious awareness, which is one reason why we can be surprised by something like the sudden disappearance of a sound. But this also means that while most animals may not be able to imagine the way we can, their brains probably rely on much the same mechanism as ours. Clark touched briefly on the debate over whether brains are even necessary, since it is definitely possible to realize these principles in a very simple neural net. This was one of those episodes that contains a lot of detail, so I want to remind you that you can get a transcript of this episode at brainsciencepodcast.com. Surfing uncertainty is not for everyone, but I do highly recommend it for anyone who has read Clark's earlier work, to students, and to anyone who wants to get into the meat of these ideas. It's also a great introduction to the literature of this emerging field. Next month's episode is going to be a new interview with Dr. Fabrizio Benedetti, the world's leading researcher of the neurobiology of placebos. I recently reposted his interview from 2010, so I'm really looking forward to getting an update on his research. If you'd like to get the show notes for this episode automatically, just sign up for the Brain Science newsletter at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me feedback about this episode or anything else at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you listen via the free Brain Science mobile app, it is very easy to send me feedback while you're in the app. Producing the Brain Science Podcast is very time-intensive. And last month, in my annual end-of-the-year review, I mentioned that I will be asking for increased listener support during the upcoming year. I've tried to simplify the website to make it easier for you to choose the method that's best for you. There are three choices. Direct donation, Patreon, and the premium subscription. For the last couple of years, the premium subscription has been the most popular, especially with new listeners. For $5 a month, you get unlimited access to all the back episodes, and you get all the episode transcripts, including each new episode. If you look in iTunes or any other podcasting app, you will see that all the episodes from 2013 forward are free. My goal is to keep the new episodes free while using the back catalog and the episode transcripts to generate some income. 
Another popular choice is direct donation via PayPal or check. This is best for those of you who want to give a single lump sum. Finally, the newest option is Patreon.com, which allows you to make a monthly pledge to support various projects, including podcasts. I'm hopeful that this will be convenient to those of you who want to support the show, but don't really want or need the premium content. To pledge via Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash docartemis. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Doc Artemis is D-O-C-A-R-T-E-M-I-S. To get more information about any of these options, just go to brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. Of course, I realize that some of you can't afford to support the show financially, but you can still help by telling other people about the show, either in person or via social media. Don't forget that we have an ongoing monthly drawing for a free year of premium. All you have to do is send me a screenshot of any review you post in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app store. Just send it to brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. As the Brain Science Podcast enters its 10th year, I want to thank everyone who has been listening all along, and even those of you who have just started, because if it wasn't for you, the show would not continue. So thanks again for listening, and I look forward to talking with you again very soon. The Brain Science Podcast is copyright Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this podcast to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.